darkness cannot drive our darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. One John chapter one verses five to seven. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, New Life. How are you all doing? Good. Anyone would think it's 4 p.m. on a Sunday after a big week. How's everyone going? Good. Bit of action there. Love it. Wonderful. Really helpful. Um, can I, we just take a minute to honor um, someone on our team who's put this video together? Um, we've recently started a new way by which we get materials and resources to sort of put towards the creative elements and design of our church. But in amongst all of that newness, we've got someone just with the creative ability who said, I said, I think he was studying one day and he's like, I just had this wind of inspiration in me and I put this video together, which is now the bumper for this entire series. Uh, and that was Aaron Moore. So can we just honor and thank and give appreciation to him? Um, last week when Eden was up playing the violin, I went up to her afterwards and just said, Eden, thank you so much for blessing us with your gift. And at New Life, we believe that the gifts we have are actually what brings resonance between the mission that God has for us, and we intersect our gifts with the mission of the church so God might do all that he wants in and through this place. And so uh, it was just such a blessing to have people in this church that want to lay down their gifts for the sake of the mission of God. I feel really blessed to be the pastor here. Before I jump into the text today, a quick little announcement from me. Um, uh, in our last elders meeting, uh, towards the back end of the previous month, we sat down and we tabled what we originally promised last year, which is the looking for, searching for, and electing of our fourth elder. Currently, we've got three elders, two men and one woman, uh, and we promised last year that we would start another search for our, uh, our second female elder and our fourth elder. And so I just want to let you know uh, that we're starting that process um, this week. There'll be an email that comes out from me, uh, probably around Thursday, which will articulate what that process will look like and give you all the information you need to know in order to participate and meaningfully, meaningfully contribute as to who that elder might be. When we did this process last time, we actually got a lot of really helpful feedback. I had a few coffees with individuals and um, people fed back to me uh, ways in which we could improve this process. And I just want to say thanks. Like we actually can't improve a process that we're trying to pioneer in the midst of, an, of our uniting church, what it looks like to be a church planting family of churches with local churches that have their own accountability. Like what does that look like in the uniting church, you know? And we're exploring what that looks like, both to give accountability to me as the pastor, but then too, to provide extra infrastructure with which we can dialogue between the family, which is New Life Central and our local church and what God has for us in this place. And so can I just ask you, prayerfully consider 
who it might be that God would lead to be on eldership here in New Life Brisbane, we are unashamedly looking for another female to be on eldership with us because we believe God calls both men and women to participate and use their gifts for the sake of the local church. If you're not getting newsletters from us, I just encourage you to go to church.nu forward slash e newsletter and you can type in your email there. That'll give you all the details and you'll receive information going forward. Um, And so that process is a little bit updated. It'll all be clear in the email. Sound good? Thanks for letting me say that, family. Great. Let's get into the scriptures. Um, Have you ever forgotten something that you know you needed to remember? This is the story of my life. Might be your story today. Today is a special day in the life of our culture, is it not? Did anyone forget? Actually, don't answer that. But often I'll go to the grocery store and I've got a list, you know, got my recipe that I'm going to cook, go to the grocery store, fill my bucket, and then I leave, get home, and I start making green Thai curry chicken and I forgot the rice, you know? Worst feeling, absolutely hate it. And you ask this question, do I go back or do I have green Thai curry with pasta tonight? You know, we all ask that question, right? Um, Or sometimes I go and I come back and I'm like, oh man, I forgot the saffron. Or I forgot my subscription to Women's Weekly. Or I forgot my pink Himalayan salt. And it's like, oh man, I I needed to remember this and I forgot it, right? Um, For some of us, it's like special days in the year. Um, I've been married for four years and I haven't forgotten anniversary yet. Thank you, thank you. Yep, thank you. I heard someone laugh way too hard at that, and uh, I'm not embarrassed. Um, growing up, um, there was a game we used to play. I don't know if you remember it. Um, uh, it, it. The non-PC name of the game is Chinese Whispers, but I think in America they call it the telephone game. So we're going to call it the te- telephone game. And in the telephone game, someone starts by saying something, and then they pass it to the person on their right in the circle, and they whisper it, and so on and so forth, through each person in the circle. And the aim of the game is essentially to see whether you can remember what was originally passed on, right? And interestingly, the best part about the game is because everyone wants to have a laugh, people start to sort of make things up on the way. So what start out is like, um, I like eating uh, candy canes at Christmas time, could end up being something like, I wish Chris Hemsworth was mine. You know, like that's, that's where it could end up. And you've not remembered what was passed on for you to remember. You've forgotten it. You've not held true to it. And, but, you know, the temptation in that game is that you sort of intentionally reinvent the message for a laugh. And the reason I sort of start with this illustration is because we're in the book of 1 John. And John's writing into a context where there's people trying to reinvent the message that started with Jesus and was passed on through his followers, and they're reinventing it. They're innovating it. They're trying to look for a Jesus 2.0. And John's letter is actually really beautifully and poetically simple. He's got two main points. I was reading a commentator this week. I'll get to the points in a second. I was reading a commentator this week, and, and they said, John's got nothing new to say. Like, I don't know if you've read the letter of 1 John. Beautiful, five chapters. You could knock it over in half an hour if you wanted to. It is poetry. It is rich. It is dense. But he's got two things to say, and none of them are new. He simply says that God is light and that God is love. That's all John wants to say. The analogy I've had for this as I've worked through this book myself is I feel like John's got two flowers that he's giving his readers. One flower is labeled light, and the other is labeled love. And the center of the flower are those two words. But what makes up the petals of those two points? Well, actually, what makes up the petals 
is how John takes those individual flowers and addresses the recipients in the situation they find themselves in. So he says, God is light, don't walk in darkness. God is light, let Jesus atone for your sins. God is light, love truth rather than error. And hey, by the way, God is love, so be family with one another. God is love, so don't forsake the fellowship. God is love, so you can discern the voice of the Spirit such that when someone says they claim to have a word from God, you know whether it's from God because you know that it's grounded and rooted in love. God is light, and God is love. Last week, Michael um, had this really beautiful phrase as he summarized what it looks like to journey through the book of 1 John, and that's this, that Actually, we've got a picture of God here. And our task isn't to create God in our own image, but to discover the God that showed us himself in Jesus. And this is actually where I just want to start before we jump into the idea that God is light, that if John's got no new message for his readers back then, we actually shouldn't have a new message for ourselves right now. That nothing in our culture would dictate the center of the flower that, God, that John wants us to examine this afternoon. Does anyone actually know what the center of the flower is called? Just a little... Shout out from the room. No? An iris? A calyx. Okay. I heard iris, which feels nice, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, anyway, it's worth, worth throwing to the floor, wasn't it? Here we are. Back into it. Um, like, our task as Christians isn't to reinvent the message. Um, I don't know how long you've been a Christian in the room this afternoon. I know many of you have journeyed with Jesus for a long time. Um, but I just encourage us in this this afternoon that, you know, often if you've been a Christian for a while, you start to think, man, I want a fresh word from God. Or I want like a fresh revelation. Or maybe I should move on, you know, I, I graduated from the gospel and I'm going to move on to meteor and more dense things like spiritual gifts or something. And, and I, I just want to say like, in the Christian story, there's no such thing as new ideas about God, just fresh lenses with which we engage the old ideas. That the task of the Christian is to recycle that which God passed on to us in Jesus Christ, not to reinvent it. And, and so the challenge for us, living in a world that's multicultural, pluralistic, relativistic, with their own ideas of truth and their own lenses for the world, the challenge is, man, will we stay true to that which God's shown us of himself? And that's a challenge, Right? Now, I feel very free to give us this challenge because the stakes are actually quite high. To think, I've got this idea about God that I need to remain faithful to, or I should reinvent God, and the question therefore is begged, well, in what image, right? In what image? And that's what John would have us consider as we read his letter. But here's his first point. He says, God is light. Let me just read from verse 5 right now. He says this, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Now, when I was studying this text this week, the thing that jumped out to me is that the idea of light is really profound, but it's also quite abstract. Like, does anyone feel that just as we jump into this? Like, what does light mean? And a number of the commentators would say, actually, there's two helpful categories in which to make sense of what light means. And it'll be on the slide on the next one there. Um, that on one level, it's a moral claim about who God is, and it's also an intellectual claim about what Christianity is. Um, that the writer would contrast light with darkness on the moral ground as a means by which to say, God is morally pure. God's not morally evil. God is good. 
not bad. There's no darkness in God, nothing, not even a zip, not even a hint of it, no window, no whisper, God is good, he is pure, he is not evil, there is no sin in God. And then on the other end of the spectrum, to say that this is making a claim about reality, that God is true, that Jesus has revealed truth, and that anything other than that which Jesus makes sense of is falsehood or error. That in other words, we can't get to Jesus 2.0 and still think we're walking in the light, both morally and intellectually. We remain in him. When I was growing up, um, I was afraid of the dark, like I genuinely was. And I remember I used to go to sleep, um, my parents will remember this, I used to go to sleep and I had my, my door open and then my eyes wide open just until I fell asleep. This was me as a kid, right? That was my, that was my life. And mum and dad would always say, why don't you close your eyes? I'm just like, well, I can't see what's going on in the room if my eyes are closed. Like, why don't you close the door? I'm like, well, if there's no light that leaks in, I can't see what's going on in my room. And so there I lay, tired as ever, never getting the sleep that I really needed, eyes wide open, looking like an absolute punk of a kid. And my parents were like, why won't this guy go to sleep? And I was just like, why is it dark, you know? I was afraid of the dark. And, you know, it's one thing to have light leaking in through the door, it's another thing to turn on a night light such that a few of the shadows sort of dispel. But you know the best thing for someone who's afraid of the dark? Morning. <laughs> the sun. Daylight. And when daylight would come when I was growing up, it did three things. You'll see them on the screen. It revealed the evil, which wasn't that evil. It was probably my toy car set. It dispelled the darkness, and it illuminates the way. And when the writer of the letter of John is talking about God as light, here's what, here's what they're saying, actually. They're saying that God reveals evil in our world, like he just does. And all of us know that evil's in the world. We see it. It's on the news headlines. It's in our scrolling feed. It's everywhere. It's even in us. It dispels darkness. Let me put it this way. If you, if you, if you come into contact with the sun it's gonna do something to you. Likewise, if you come close to that which is light, it's gonna do something to you. And God as light dispels darkness, but then three, it also illuminates the way. That is, it doesn't just say something negative about that which is harmful in the world, evil and sin. It actually puts forward this beautiful vision about what life should look like, that Jesus modeled. It illuminates the way. Light dispels darkness, it illuminates the way and it reveals evil. Um, and so the thing that John's asking us to consider this afternoon is, if there's people who claim to be Christians and claim to follow God, claim to be people of the light, what kind of people are they? A few years ago, Tim Keller, he's a pastor from the States, he was giving a, a talk uh, in Westminster in London to some politicians, and he unpacked Jesus' words in Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew says, you're, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And he said to politicians, hey, politicians, you should keep Christians accountable to this, because if they're not, actually our world will suffer. Gandhi, a few years ago, said, I love your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. John's actually tackling in this entire book, counterfeit Christians, versus hypocritical Christians. People who claim to follow Jesus but don't look like it, versus people who claim to follow Jesus and there's an integrity to that claim, you know? 
from the inside out. They are people of light. They're people of love. You meet them and something overflows out of them that changes you as you come into contact with them because they've had that done to them by the light of God themselves. And there's three things I'd ask us to consider this afternoon as we look at God as light applied to the church that John is writing to. The kinds of people that Christians are, if they're people of the light, are those, it'll be on the screen, that not that are sinless, but that sinless. Not people who are sinless, but people who sin less. Let me read from verses six and seven. John says this. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, if I was to ask you here, whether you're a Christian or not, have you ever met a hypocritical Christian? Yeah. And there's something like repulsive about it, you know, but there's also something nonsensical about it which is what John's saying here. Like, you, you meet someone and they say, you know, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, but their life just looks completely different. And it's just so hard to take them seriously. Why? Because they're not taking God seriously. John would say, you know, it's strong words, very strong words. But John would say, I think you're a liar. That's the claim. It stings a bit, but it forces us to check our heart. There's something nonsensical about it. Um, it sort of begs the question, though, even as we consider what it means to be someone who sort of tries to sin less, what is sin, right? We live in a post-Christian world, and most people think sin is like going against the Ten Commandments, which most of us don't really know what they are anyway, right? That's actually quite unhelpful when it comes to sin. Um, the definition for sin in the Greek is, the Greek word is hamartia, and it's, it's got this imagery of someone shooting a bow and arrow, aiming for a target, and as they shoot it, it flies and goes and goes and goes, hits the board, but misses the mark. And to sin's really simply just to miss the mark in the Christian story, which begs the question, what do I aim for in life? And this is the beautiful thing about light and God being light. He gives us something to aim for. But all of us entangled in sin find ourselves falling short, missing the mark, never actually getting there, wanting to, propelling ourselves to, starting down the track, but not actually making it. We miss the mark. I love what Susanna Wesley, the mother of um, John and Charles Wesley, how she defines sin. Um, let me read it for you now. It'll be on the screen. She said this to her sons when they asked her, what is sin? Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. I just want to ask us this afternoon, church, and it's beautiful because this question's evoked by the text, not by my own sort of internal musings or maybe my indigestion, you know, this, is, this comes out of the scriptures. Are you living a life that seeks to sin less? Now, here's what I'm saying when I make that, ask that question. The goal of the Christian life, like the goal of the Christian life is not to sin less. But a sign of the Christian life is if we really come into contact with the God who is light, make ourselves available to him, open up our hearts to him, ask him to search us and know us, what's that gonna look like? Change, transformation, a new heart, a fresh start, it's gonna actually change us. And so I wanna ask the question, 
Are you living a life that over time makes you sin less? Anything that weakens your reason makes callous your conscience. Are you avoiding those things in this life? Are you fleeing from them? Now, one quick distinction that's helpful is, is this, that the, the language that John uses here, does he say something like, there it is. He uses the language of walking in sin versus being in sin or doing a sin. And that's really helpful because it sort of holds out this idea that there's a difference between habitual sin where your heart grows callous and cold to God versus like just doing the wrong thing every now and again or versus just being like a broken human like the rest of us. There's a difference there. And what John's asking you to consider is, is not, hey, I stuffed up, therefore I'm not on a you know, good train track with this guy called Jesus. Not at all. It's actually this much more entrenched idea are you, are you trying to flee that which has so entangled you for so long? Are you trying to do that? So it's a question of the, of the tenderness of your heart as I ask that question. Um, the way that this has really come up for me, and I'll move on to the next point after this. The way this has come up for me in conversation, um, just as a pastor, I was chatting with Scott Wrigley about this actually, just um, at Catalyst Retreat recently, is often people will come and they'll start describing a way in which you know, their life before Jesus is, is just not what they would like it to be. But there's two postures people can have when they do that. One is the posture of, hey, pastor, can you give me a free pass? And the other is the posture of, hey, I think I need help. I don't know if you have experienced that. This difference between, I actually just want a free pass to live the life that I know is actually hurting me. Not light, but darkness. Not truth, but error. Not freedom, but bondage. Or is it, is it a different posture, this sense that oh, I would love freedom from this. I would love life away from this. I'd love not to be entangled by this. Christians are people, not that are sinless, but who seek to sin less. John would also ask us to consider this, that Christians are people who confess and not conceal. Now, before I jump into this point, let me just make a, a broad statement about this sermon. If this is your first time with us, some weeks are a lot less intense than this sermon, you know what I'm saying? Other weeks actually might be a bit more dirgy, you know, to use that language. But this is just where John takes us, right? And we have to go there. Like, if we never go there as a church, where are we going? What are we doing? And so I just want to encourage us as I jump into this next point, lean in. And if you find yourself here, you're not a Christian or someone brought you along, then I would just say on one level, man, I hope what you take away from this sermon is not like you need to try and find out things in your life that you need to confess, but rather that Jesus is the light who shows us the way that Jesus has given us himself and that he's shown us what love is. And so as we consider these things, don't think of this as a sort of a beat down, oppressive sort of matrix through which to make yourself feel bad. No, use this as a clue by which to think maybe there's something more that my life should aim to. But let's jump in. Confession, not concealment. Paul, uh, John would write this, verses eight to nine. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, the beautiful thing about John's writing, if you were to read this letter, is you'll notice that he's a pastor, like he's not a preacher. He's not got this rule book that he's trying to beat you with. He's got this heart that he's trying to make clear. And we know this because so punctuated throughout the letter is this appeal to, to the reader. He says, dear children, all the way through, 
This is the message. Dear children, listen to me. Dear children, you find yourself entangled and ensnared. Please hear my message. He's laying bare his heart. And I just want to step into that heart for a second. Many of you will know that I used to work for a a preaching ministry. And um, the founder of this ministry was a guy named Ravi Zacharias. And when I first heard about this guy, he was the model to which I aimed my ministry life. He was eloquent with his speech. He seemed to have an integrity about him. And the mythology or the language that surrounded this guy as he was introduced to me was always, oh, he's a family man. He's a tender-hearted human. And he, was, he had an Indian background, and then he did his studies in North America. And so he had this beautiful accent, and he'd tell stories in a way that would just lull you across, you know, and you'd find yourself a worshiper of Jesus by the end of it, whether you knew it or not. He just had a gift in preaching. Now, I, I, I didn't idolize this man, but I respected him, you know? And two years ago, it came out that um, actually for the last two decades, he'd been entangled in sin. That this founder of an incredible ministry found himself sleeping with the masseuses that he would be massaged by. And this wasn't just a one-off thing, it was habitual, and it went on for two decades. Now the craziest thing about this story is that he concealed it, not just from the ministry, not just from other leaders in the ministry, but he actually concealed it from his family. And I remember hearing this story and having two thoughts, one challenging and the other pastoral. Here's the challenging one. How could it be that someone could so conceal something, so compartmentalize something, so get used to something that their heart grows callous and they lose their conviction and they find themselves so entangled in it. How could that be? What's wrong with the world? Think of his family. Think of his children. Think of the ministry that he's given birth to and now finds itself in sort of chaos and crisis mode and that's ended up how, it's not how I end up here at New Life, but it's part of the story. How? Like you hear that story and it's like, goodness me. You know, in my experience, we do have two options in this life. Like if you reckon with the fact that we're not perfect humans, right? You can confess what you're not, or you can conceal what you're not. And if you conceal what you're not, here's what you do. You start a journey which leads down a track which begins with concealment, turns into compartmentalization, helps you to start living two different lives, one before those that you know, know and care about and one before those that you're happy to do with whatever with, then turns into a callousness of heart, which makes it really hard for your conscience to be pricked and tender. And this is what led to the pastoral response. Does he have anyone he can share with? One of the most powerful things in my Christian journey has been having brothers and sisters to share in life with. Since getting married, not just to confess my sins, but to own my sins with my wife. Since being a pastor, having brothers in pastoral ministry here in Brisbane that I can say, man, I'm just not the guy I wanna be. Can I share it with you? And the sense of release that brings. And what's the alternative? conceal, compartmentalize, to grow callous, and to lose conviction. I don't know where you are today, but when we talk about confession, we're not talking about trying to find things in your life to name so you can feel bad about yourself. We're just saying all of us are broken, 
Do you have someone to share it with? Do you have someone to share it with? To get really practical, do you have a brother, if you're a guy, a Christian brother, you can say, hey, I'm, I'm just not going as well in this area of my life. I really need someone to share with. Will you just pray with me? Will you sit with me? If you're a female, do you have a sister in your life that you can do the same with? Maybe it's a trusted mentor. What does that look like for you? Do you have someone you can share with? Often we feel like we don't need to share anything, either because we're isolated, so we don't have someone to share it with, or we're ignorant. <laughs> and we're ignorant of actually some of the deepest parts of ourselves. And to find yourself coming to grips with who you are is one of the most scary things, but in relationship, one of the most liberating things. Do you have someone to confess with? Um, There's a quote from Augustine behind me. Let me read it to you. It's the heart behind what I'm saying. In failing to confess, Lord, I would only hide you from myself, not myself from you. God knows everything. He knows the deepest parts of us, yet loves us the same. And to conceal rather to confess would be to say to God, not that we could hide from him, but that we're making him hide from us. If you don't have someone in your world, here's the beauty of the Christian story of Jesus' risen, ruling, and reigning. You can confess to him that he is the one that will hear our cry. He is the friend we have in Jesus. Christianity doesn't say confess or else. It says, do you have someone you can confess to? It just works with that assumption. <laughs> And it's liberating. Christians are people who seek to sin less, not who are sinless. Christians are someone who should confess, not conceal. And lastly, Christians are people who let God atone for them rather than seeking to achieve for God. Verses 10 onwards, let me read. He says, If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. One of the things that John is picking up on here is, is essentially the work of Jesus and what Jesus has done on our behalf, such that we might be reconciled to God at no cost to ourselves, but every cost to him. And I'll say it till I'm blue in the face here at New Life, but we come into a relationship with God, not because we achieve it, but because God accepts us as we are and takes us on a journey. That God does have a vision for our lives from which we constantly fall short, but he is so loving and gracious. But there's a bit of a thing that rolls around in the church when we talk about the work of Jesus that I want to address really quickly. I think often we think about God and we think God's serious about sin, so God mustn't like me. So wrong, so unhelpful. Because what does that mean when you look at the person of Jesus? Well, you think, well, God really didn't like me, but luckily Jesus did something, so now God really likes me. So unhelpful. And at the heart of the Christian story is this claim that God has existed from eternity past into eternity future, that God is a community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always existing in relationship with one another. But humanity was not the people that God called them to be. And the incursion for that, the penalty for that is death, walking away from the tree of life, the giver of life, light and love himself, walking away. And it's obviously the case that the penalty for that is death. And so God, motivated by love, not anger, not hate, 
motivated by holy love, stepped in to deal with sin justly, but then at the same time deal with it on our behalf so he could extend to us mercy. That what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ is actually the Godhead working together to make a way by which sin could be accounted for, but ourselves could be loved into the kingdom. It's the cross of Christ. It's atonement, which means you actually don't need to achieve your way back into relationship with God, ever, never. It's just not part of the story. You're accepted by God as you are. Christians are people who are atoned for, not people who seek to achieve. Now, every other worldview, I love what C.S. Lewis said about Christianity. He says, every other worldview would sort of suggest that there's a mountain we need to climb to get to God. And that you climb this mountain through having the right experience, thinking the right thoughts, or doing the right things, adjusting the right behaviors. But actually what we see in the Christian story is that God treads down the mountain himself and on our behalf makes a way for us to be united with him as we are. It's atonement, it's not achievement. Atonement, not achievement. The old English word for atonement just simply means to be made one with one another. At one minute. And so this all boils down to this. If we're people who confess rather than conceal, seek to sin less rather than being sinless, then it means we walk out of here broken and beautiful all at the same time. Liberated and still in bondage in a way, all at the same time. As Martin Luther would say, sinner and saint, all at the same time. That there's something that God's declared over us that we by the Spirit are continually experiencing growth and freedom in. And so I just want to simply say this. Do you know that part of the story? Do you know this message? Are you passing it on? Are you trying to reinvent it? Are you remaining faithful to it? Have you found liberty in and through it? And as you consider those things, can I actually just invite you to stand? One of the things we've not done in my time as the pastor here is actually join together in one voice and confess something as a community. When Kath and I were living in the UK, um, we went to an Anglican church and they so helpfully read through the common book of prayer. And as a church, they'd often um, just confess their sin in a service in joint voice, really beautiful. And so I thought we might do that together. The words will be on the screen behind me. And as we read, I'll lead us, but I'm gonna turn my microphone down, slash Mark will do that for us. And we're gonna do it in one voice. And as we do this, can I just encourage you? Think of this not as a space by which you say, oh, I need to feel really bad about myself. Think of this as God's answer to the brokenness you feel already. Because God just assumes it's there and he's giving you a space with which to articulate and be free. And so let's confess. Mark, if you could turn my microphone down, that'd be wonderful. In three, two, one. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and will walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And friends, in that spirit, let me just say over us, God is love and God is light. He in His justice and He in His mercy 
absolves you of sin, forgives you of trespass, leads you in the way of everlasting. And so as you say this together, confess, not conceal, feel the word of the Lord, forgiveness, grace, redemption, and freedom. And in that freedom, let's sing together.